This week on the Unsigned Podcast, we have our good friend Ron Perks, booking agent at United Talent Agency, also a good friend of mine uh, from my early days booking shows out in Buffalo. Uh, Ron is a great dude who's worked on really big projects throughout his career, um, provides a lot of insight, so this is a great episode. Uh, for more information on Studio Talk, check us out at studiotalk.co, uh, but for now, let's get into the episode. I'm Ron Perks, and I work at United Talent Agency. So you're originally from uh, Buffalo. We go way back, obviously, but you know, tell us a little bit more about like kind of your backstory. How'd you get started in music, and you know, how did your, you know, were you involved in a? I know, I know you were involved in a band. You were a drummer, and you know, is that your initial uh, entry point into the industry? Yeah. So I mean, grew up, uh, born and raised Buffalo, New York. I think I started drumming at an early age. That was always like my thing. Yep. Uh, I loved it. Always wanted to be that guy. And that actually led me to pursuing music all the way through high school and then all the way into college too. I went and I studied music at a tiny school in Columbus, Ohio called Capital University. Gotcha. Dope. So I originally went there. I thought I was going to be the, like the next greatest jazz drummer in the world. Uh, <laughs> I got there. I was like, nah. So then it's I not, switched. Not my tempo. No. That whiplash shit. No. <laughs> So I switched to music production thinking I was going to be the next Timbaland. And I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. I can't wait for this. And then the first class I took for that, I was like, okay, all these dudes are getting really pumped about turning these knobs. And I'm bored out of my mind. So strike two. And then last but not least, I found music business, which then kind of really blended everything that I loved. Like I love being a performer. Mm -hmm. But I also was always more... I was always like the more business savvy person in any bands that I was right. in or anything like that. Got so all the bookings, getting paid, yeah, and all so that it was type of stuff. Kind of like a natural marriage of two things that I really liked, and then luckily that's what I stuck with when I was in school. Before you got to uh, UTA, where were you at, and you know, kind of what were you working on? Were you just booking shows yourself, and then you kind of stumbled into the booking agency world, or, or was it something that you actively pursued? I, well, it's funny. That's kind of how we originally met. Yeah. I mean. So after school came and went, and then I went through my whole, like, okay, what do I do now, period, I went back home to Buffalo for about 16, 18 months, and during that time of, like, doing some odd jobs, I actually landed at this independent record label called DTR, mm -hmm. Deep Thinker Records, and they kind of had their heyday. They had, like, a real moment in the early 90s with, like, the boom bap era and everything, mm -hmm. and, and definitely had some dudes that were on the radar, and... It was still uh, – like they were still prominent in Buffalo, which I was like super surprised because I was like, what? Yeah, like, yeah. Anyone in Buffalo doing something? <laughs> like that's crazy. So I, I took an interview uh, the first time I ever looked for a job on Craigslist, by the way. So it actually, wow. shit, there you go. actually paid out. And – we will have to talk about the horror stories around because I think for I, your one success story, I have yeah, 13 yeah. of my own <laughs> Craigslist job horror stories. Which, to, yeah, yeah, which is why I always stayed away from Separate it. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went there for an interview and then they kind of like let me hang around as an intern position type thing. Okay. And then from there, I was helping put together some shows and like some of them were monthly uh, – Shows like showcase, type like showcase things, okay. which is how I originally met Murph. Like yep. he came through with Cole one of these times, and like, you know, they were, for a lack of a better term, like very underdeveloped, not the best run situations. Right. But it was like, 
It was for the, it was for that audience. They yeah, were yeah, yeah, you know, and that group those sort of position. Correct. Yeah. So, and I'm earning yeah. my stripes too because I wasn't the best manager of the night. But luckily, the guy who hired me was like, "All right, you don't have it yet, but I'm going to throw you into the water and you're going to learn how to swim." Right. So I was doing that, and then eventually, from doing those showcases and then doing weekly events like drinking nights or bar nights to make right. money, uh, he eventually started to have me book tours because oh. the, there was still independent hip-hop artists that he was working with that he was funneling all this money behind and actually believed in them. So the first part was the touring aspect. And when he started to let me book, it was essentially just booking like bar shows for maybe a couple hundred bucks and drink tickets. Uh Yep. But that's really where I cut my teeth, like learning how to route you know, from here to there. Oh, maybe you shouldn't have done that because that's a 12-hour drive right. or things like that. So after doing that for about, I'd say it was about a year, uh, he gave me the opportunity to then go and manage those tours. Mm-hmm. So I got to manage like a Canadian tour. I got to manage a tour where we went all the way down to South by, came all the way back up, and, you know, kind of got to see it all for what it truly is. And I'm actually very grateful for that moment because it helps me be a better agent now, knowing that when I sit in the office and I just confirm a show, I'm like, hey, confirming here, you play here, confirm, play here. I actually will have the artist perspective in mind. You have of, the sensibility around yeah. it. Yeah, like, like not just hey, saying yes for my yeah, you were yeah. Right, yeah. That's going to be an eight-hour drive yeah, yeah. in a smelly van. I will do my best. Like, you know, so I'm actually very grateful. But that's that was eventually what kind of kick-started everything for me. Yeah, that was the foundation. Right perspective there. is the lost piece of any role in most business, but in this business in particular, I think to work in management than to be on the label side or to be on an agency end or to be like to see it from different ends, it always changes how you go into certain conversations and it oh, just helps. 100%. Like it's hugely advantageous. 100%. Um, what was your, your first role at UTA? Like what was your first kind of true, like this is you like getting your footing there? So actually my first gig was not even UTA. It was when we were the agency group. Okay. When we were the agency group, because the agency group was acquired by UTA a couple of years ago. Gotcha. And from doing everything that I had done at DTR and meeting a few people here and there, I met some people in New York. And one buddy hooked me up with this interview for the agency group. And my first gig was the executive assistant to the CEO. Okay. Nice. And, you know, she was amazing. Like still a homie to this day. One yep. of my first mentors, period. And a lot of that was very straightforward. Uh-huh. You know, you're taking calls, booking lunches, meetings, getting lunch, things of that nature. <clears throat> but that was like the first real, oh, my God, I'm here. Right. Yeah. Right. I remember, I think we, we, I randomly bumped into you. You remember that night we were in like the Lower East Side and I think it was like <laughs> yeah. right after you had that meeting or you were down here for that meeting walking down the block in the middle of the night it was like 11 o'clock at night we were both going to like separate parties we're like nobody else was on this street and we're like yo what the fuck <laughs> yeah we just like ran into each other we're like we're like yo hey, you hey <laughs> me you hey what's up means you're in the right place it yeah something something in the universe aligned you at that point yeah and it was great and you know that that was great and then like going back to that position the position was great too in the sense of it taught you how to be sharp one hundred percent, and because you, you can't, when someone has a lot going on, you feel like your role is 
well, dude, you're their manager. But like, you, you, you really are. are. You really are. Yeah. And essentially that actually brought me to the next point of my career, which is when she she pulled me aside one day and she goes, Ron, you know, you you're doing a really good job, but either you're going to want to get into law because she was the general counsel for mm-hmm. our company as well. And, like, and what was her name, by the way? Uh, Natalia Nastaskin. There you go. Okay. She's currently the the head of our U.S. music operations. Gotcha. So she she goes, hey, you, you're either going to get into law or you're going to be an assistant for your whole life. And I didn't want to do either. So she was like, you know, what else can we look into? And then eventually I – Weaseled my way into becoming the second assistant for Peter Schwartz, who's like an OG in the booking world. And that kind of actually kickstarted the whole being an actual music agent. So so you were there first and then you tried to – you started to make that transition of kind of being an agent. Were you like an an assistant agent for somebody before you became your own agent? And like now you're doing – you're booking college shows. Mm -hmm. Is that where you started or were you in a different department? No. So I mean – the way it usually goes when you're in this world is that, you know, you you hope that you can get a position as an assistant. And when right. you do, you know, you're going to be an assistant for at least three years. Yep. And I don't think many people know that when they get into it. But what generally happens is you become an assistant. And then when you look at that three-year breakdown, the first year you just put your head down and you do really good work. If you do really good work – and the agent that you work for can trust you. Maybe around the second year sometime, they'll give you those bands that they don't really prioritize. They'll right, hand them right. off to you. It's people on the fringes. Yeah. Like, they'll hey, let let's you, see what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They'll let you finally start to spread your wings and learn everything that yeah. you need to learn to actually become a booker. And then hopefully by year three, you know – if you're doing it right, by year three, it's the busiest and it's actually the worst period of your career so far because <laughs> you're essentially doing two jobs. Like yeah. you're an assistant, but, but then you're also bands. being an agent because yeah. you're booking the bands. But then all the shows that you book, you have to contract and do all the admin work. And it's it's actually very stressful. But then hopefully after that, you know, you you do good work, you do all the schmoozing, and then you actually – if you get promoted to you know like a junior agent level – then you usually get into a more siloed, uh, I guess, a, a siloed position where I'm at now. Right, uh-huh. right. So talking about that specifically, I'm a fucking doctor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really is. Yeah, you you got to do the seven years. Dude, some people will be... law, or it's going to be like med school for the first five years of your career. Some people, some of the most successful agents, actually hung around. They knew they wanted to do this for so long. They were assistants for like five years. Well, yeah, because I think then. With the trajectory, not suggesting this for anybody who's listening, but the trajectory there is like if you are – like you can be an assistant and like you, we said earlier, like you're the mm-hmm. front. You're the first line of defense. But if you do that for five, six years, as soon as somebody leaves, you just kind of get upstreamed into that you skip the line a little bit mm-hmm. because a big part of the – with most parts of the entertainment business, but particularly with agencies is – or with, with being an agent, like it's tenure. So that's it. Like if you get your six years in or whatever, then they're like, okay – your next man up or next woman up at this point. Like you don't necessarily have to like climb the ranks. It's more fulfilling and economically makes more fucking <laughs> yeah. sense. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it is, it is the kind of thing where, you know, your tax bracket does change overnight 
after you know working the six years Which, to become yeah, a one hit wonder. Makes it a little beneficial then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's worth it on, on some level. Yeah, for sure. So going into a little bit more about the the college shows, what are some of the you know I want to get into some of the nitty gritty details, but before we do that, kind of what are some just some of the biggest problems, uh, biggest challenges, I should say, that you run into booking new bands? Because the college market is something that everybody wants to hit, um, but obviously very tough. So like, what are what are some of those big challenges that you face? Yeah, the, the craziest thing about the college world is that they want the cream of the crop, mm-hmm. all right? Because, you know, you have to appeal to such a wide audience when you're booking for a college. Yeah. Right. That they want someone that appeals to everyone. Right. right. So what comes with that is they only want the cream of the crop. And then anyone else that is kind of in between or below that, they just really don't care about. You know, either you have to be super buzzy or you have to already be established. So – and that, that's difficult. And then, you know, on top of that, I, I'd say the second most difficult part about working with colleges is that you're usually dealing with – like a programming board of right. up to 20, 30 kids in some colleges where all 20 or 30 of them or majority or whatever it may be, they all have to raise they their hand yeah. to say, oh, yes, we will book this artist or we will uh-huh. book that artist. Or sometimes the process can be so painstakingly long that they'll have to raise all 30 hands just to say, okay, we'll submit an offer to this right, artist right, where it's right. like, you know, a lot of agents who don't work in this world, it's it's very agonizing because everything takes twice as long. Longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all long. And, yeah. And that's usually the most difficult thing. Like colleges have a long bureaucratic process for anything to take place. And that's usually the most frustrating. So how do you know that like a band is ready to play college shows? Like when is the right time uh, either for an act to do it or when when is it the right time for, for their agent to start doing it? Like do they need to be playing a bunch of shows and like already be popping in some local area or, or regional area, you know, or is it harder for regional acts to do that? And it's like you really have to be a national act before you can start, you know, playing, uh, playing colleges. You know, it's it's difficult to say because, you know, if you want the college market to be part of your overall touring business consistently, then you have to be in the upper echelon of artists. Right, right. You just you just have to be. Yeah. Now, if you're an artist that's up and coming and or you're you do have something happening like in a local scene, I think you can definitely find your way in in a few areas because for every example I have of having an established artist get booked, there are definitely developing artists who have their region on lock. And because of that, you know, a lot of those local colleges are very aware right. and they'll reach out to them. And the bigger colleges will book them as an opener or like – but if Things you go that into nature, like exactly. – Yeah, if you're in like Massachusetts or something, you can – if a local college market might be 15 colleges for something yeah, like that. Yeah, which would be yeah, so a slam like, dunk. Yeah. A slam dunk for sure. But it's – when the timing is right is always difficult to say. Right. You know? But once again, it just comes back to which artist is in most demand or most buzzy. Number one record. Yeah, uh, I mean, platinum. <laughs> things like that. You know, the little, those the little things. <laughs> yeah, the little things. <laughs> uh, dope. So, like, getting into a little bit more of the specifics, how closely do you work with the road manager for each act? I mean, like you mentioned before, you've you've gone on those those trips yourself, so you like know what goes into that. 
when you book a tour for a, a you know eight cities or whatever, like are you constantly talking to the road manager every single day, and you know kind of what's that process like in terms of um, doing kind of some of the clerical work that needs to be done, like getting paid on time and like getting the proper, you know, whether it's the check or the cash, like are you constantly in contact with them or is everything pretty much like you get the check in the mail and and you're good? For the most part, a lot of my correspondence from the time I get an offer to presenting it is mainly just with the responsible agent. Just a clarification on that. A lot of agencies will have two types of quote unquote agents. There's a booking agent who books the show in their particular area, like I'm colleges, there's privates and corporates, gotcha. there's clubs and theaters. And then there's the responsible agent, like the one agent that is responsible for that artist. Gotcha. So if I pulled in an offer for an artist, I would go to their responsible agent, say, hey, I have this offer. You know, let me know what you think. Gotcha. They take care of all the communication between management, hopefully confirm it. And then I'll do everything on my end to sort payment, to sort all the logistics, and then after that, my job's done with. Gotcha. And it's okay. up to the responsible agent's office to make sure everything is is handled from there forward. Gotcha. So there's there's multiple layers. It's not like just one agent. It's even when someone has one agent that's listed on their you know their social media profile, it's, it's a team of people that are booking various types. Yeah, of I shows. mean everything we do is a huge team effort. Getting a little bit more specific, how does a band get paid for gigs? What's that whole process that people should be thinking about? You know, do they? You know, do they want to make sure that they get paid half up front before they even do the show? Uh, should it be check? Should it be cash? Like, what are some of the experiences that that you've dealt with that, um, you know, some insight that you can provide to people that are just starting out, starting to book a couple of shows at a time? I mean, if you're getting into the college world, you're going to get paid 100% day of show. Going back to the painstakingly long process yeah. of colleges and the bureaucratic divisions within it. You know, so many things have to get signed off and approved by finance and then the VP and then student affairs. So when you're playing colleges, you just always strive uh, to get the check 100% day of show. Now, obviously, for any other show, the standard 50% deposit, 50% day of show is, is typical. But gotcha. when it comes to colleges, you're going to get all of it, one lump sum. After you day of and and that's mainly just because obviously they have the money you know like the agency or the band is willing to take that risk to get a hundred percent because they know that the money is essentially guaranteed right correct and you know I mean all schools are they're they're good for the money there's a lot of legal jargon tied up to it as well but they're backed by the state so it's not like they can run away right. or whatever it may be right 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 so yeah. 5,000 people at your show that all pay $45,000 yeah. a year. They're good for it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's – and the thing is too, it's such common practice that, you know, a lot of of what we do in, in music is based off of good faith. Yeah. That with the legal jargon set aside, that's something that I don't think would ever be broken between schools and, right, right. and artists. I think what by that point, the artists are probably so conditioned – from because they see, I mean, you said like you have to be a pretty sizable artist to do a college show, but they see college shows as the next step up from doing local shows. And the law of the land for local shows is deposit, 
as soon as it's booked and then you get paid the, the other 50% yep. before you touch the stage. So that's a lot of the mentality that's behind it. So they're just like, okay, cool. I'm booked at your school and like travel will be sorted, everything. But when do I get paid? I'm not leaving the hotel or I'm not leaving wherever <laughs> I'm staying. Like I'm not leaving the house until I get paid. And they don't realize that like the school is like, they have a lot more to lose by not paying you. Right. Oh yeah. Then, 100%. Then you have 100%. to lose by being stiff by them. Yeah. Because if nothing yeah. else, if you're stiff by them, you at least have a round trip flight. Like you know that you can make it home. You can get there but yeah, get it back. is. No, agreed. Agreed. What are the commission splits typically like on something like, is it a standard 10%? Is it 20%? Does it fluctuate based on the artists? Like. No, in the agency world, it's very, very straightforward. Just 10%. No, I mean, everything we do. You just you do it to earn just the down the line. Yep, yep. And is it? It's on. You get paid off of um, every show, or is it by the tour? No, every show. Yep. So I mean, if you have a tour, obviously that adds up a little it's bit the more. Large right. booking, right? Yeah, that helps out big time. Um, but you could have large one-off events too. I mean, it, it's all per show, uh-huh. and then you know you just hope. I mean, our, our business is a volume business, right? So while it is per show, you hope you have an artist that does. 200 shows a year. And do you touch more than just the gate? Like, is there a split of merch or do you have deals where sometimes it's... No, everything in our world is just very straightforward. Okay. It's strictly the show, you know, and then that's that's our job. We get, you know, you take care of everything after that is yours. Merch is yours. All that stuff is yours. Okay. Talking a little bit outside of the college shows for a second. um, I mean, you've been involved in promoting and booking a bunch of other shows. What's the relationship like when an agent uh, goes to negotiate with a promoter? You know, like that, that's really what all those smaller markets are about, right? They're going to, there's some promoter that has a bunch of money that wants to put on a show. They reach out, you know, what, how do those negotiations uh, typically go? You know, that, it depends. Uh, and I guess to give a, a frame of reference, like yeah. in the college world, when you're you're booking that stuff, colleges always start from the mentality of, okay, we have a budget. We know the genre. Therefore, we'll look at artists that meet that criteria and then we'll go out and find them. You know, when you're looking at it in a different aspect of like a, a hard ticket aspect, you know, it's all about your last play in the market. And and actually, just to clarify that too, for anyone who doesn't know, you know the difference between a soft ticket play and a hard ticket play is essentially in a soft ticket play, you're going to the event for the event. You know, right. the, this is like festivals and and what right. have you, things of that nature. Where it's yeah. like you're not really going for one specific artist, mm-hmm. but you're going for that event. You're Unless going, it's Coachella, in which case you're definitely going for Beyonce. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was there, so yeah, <laughs> guilty. <laughs> You know, or like say there's like a monthly music event that happens, you know, somewhere and you go for that event, but you don't really know who the artist is every month. Right. right. All right. Those are the soft ticket events. The hard ticket events are you giving your money and saying, hey, I'm going for this person. I'm going to Travis Scott. I'm going going to MSG to see Travis Scott. So in uh, going back to the question in terms of being able to have those conversations between promoters and agents. You know, when you're developing in the hard ticket space, a lot of it is based off of your last play. So when you're building your hard ticket uh, history, that's it's honestly the most valuable piece of your touring profile that you'll have. And a lot of it, you have to have some momentum. You know, we we can't sell off of nothing. For sure. And with that, you know, we just have to find promoters that are willing to take a chance on on what we have and what you can be and then hopefully you know with a little schmoozing 
maybe you, you kind of go a little bit light on the deals to take the risk away from the promoter, mm-hmm. you reach a happy medium, and then you can get some momentum going. So then you play that whole string of shows, hopefully the tour does great, and then the next year when you come around, you've proven yourself, and you can go out, you know, ask for the money that you're technically worth, and the promoters are more confident in you, you're more confident in you, and then there you just keep building your touring history. So it's really about more. trying to build like that long t- – it's, it's always – the goal is to always try and build out a long-term framework like we're going to hit this market you know, three times this year because it's going to set us up in three years. 100%. Gotcha. The biggest thing that gets preached is to not skip steps. Okay. I mean the greatest example uh, is someone like Post Malone did not skip any steps. No. And, you know, it's very easy to skip steps, especially when you have an artist that can transcend yeah. so quickly. Right. When you're a projected megastar with huge records, it's yeah. very easy to skip. You're like, oh, well, let's just do arenas next yeah. year. Right. It's like, no, you, you do not skip steps. And you worked pretty closely on that with Cheryl, right? His his booking agent? I, or you worked yeah, I was, under her I was her partner? first uh, assistant when she – I mean, she did all of that. Yeah, I, yeah. I saw her hustle from day one, the moment he came out, and – you know, I learned a lot from her during that time because I saw it firsthand how she didn't skip any steps. And that, you know, there are moments like that I'm super grateful for because you, you don't know what you're a part of at the time. Yeah. And then you look at it afterwards and you go, holy shit, like <laughs> there were some like hidden gems in yeah. this process. And that was definitely one of them. So what are some of the big factors that that typically convince promoters to give an artist more money or a better deal for a show or to be a bit more lenient in terms of how they'll negotiate or what they're willing to give up? If there's anything, I would say uh, the overall buzz or hype around an artist because if you don't have hard ticket history, you know, a lot of promoters will look at you and go, I don't know, like this is the highest – risk factor there is. I don't know how you're going to perform. I don't want to lose all my money. Right. But if you're also the same artist that was just in a bidding war between three labels and you all of a sudden, you're also booked on Lollapalooza and Coachella this year because because of your buzz, Right. then promoters will most likely want to get in early. Okay. And I think they'll definitely be more willing to take that risk knowing like, okay, there's something here. I know he doesn't have what I'm generally looking for, but there's something here and I want in. So if if college shows are kind of like the the second or third step in an artist that's just starting out as to like where they want to go for their for their touring shows, how can they and, – and again, this isn't something that you deal with every day but something that you have dealt with in the past. How should they think about um, booking shows right off the bat? Like you want to start – you know, is it best to start regionally and say, look, we're going to do like as many shows as we can in this like, you know, 20 mile radius of where we live and hit that a couple of times uh, over a course of month, you know, a few months and then build up your contact base, then go, you know, 50 miles out and then start to go a little bit more regionally where we're like, hey, we're going to do the northeast or we're going to do the southeast and and then start to build, um, you know, your hard ticket sales that way. Is that like a, a solid framework for how artists should be thinking about building their touring career? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you want to start locally. If yep. you could dominate locally, 
you just want to keep branching out slowly and surely. I mean, you don't want to get to the point where you're oversaturating the market. I was going to say, what's what is there a, a, a number or a, a kind of a guideline that you'd say like you yo. just don't want to be the band where everyone has seen you somewhere. That's where it gets a little tough. And even when I was in college, there were bands that were really, really good. Yep. And they were taking off and could have had a shot at regional success or maybe even national success. But they kind of shot themselves in the foot because they would just play the, the same, same bar, bar gig yeah. every Thursday. Yeah. And if they weren't doing the bar gig on Thursday, they were doing another gig on Saturday too. And, you know, it's just kind of like eventually people just get tired of it. It just is what it is. So there's really no rhyme or reason to it exactly. But generally when we book tours, you don't want to revisit a market, you know, at least – I don't know. It's like four, six months, right. eight months. You know, you gotta let it breathe a little bit. It's easier for us because we generally go off of album cycles. That's what that, that was going to be but, my follow up. Like, should artists, even when they're first starting out, like, should that be when they make the push to just play that same bar four Thursdays in a row because they just dropped a new project and they want their local market to hear it? It's like. You know, is that okay to play four or five shows in a row and then like chill for three months and, and not play there so they can kind of start to build that momentum a little bit? If you were still building and you released a new project, I would say release the project and then I wouldn't play more than once a month right. in your hometown. You know, anything more than that is just – you're not it's differentiating rough. the show enough. Like right. you keep hitting them with the same this, sauce And that's over the thing is, again. you know, even once a month is kind of iffy. Yeah. Because, you know, if I saw you last month, I'm not it's sure exactly what happened in 30 days. Right. Yeah, yeah, like, right. Well, you haven't released a new project in 30 days, right. so I'm yeah. probably going to hear the same songs. So Same encore. Exactly. Same people in the audience yeah. singing along to the same. <laughs> Hopefully you have on some different outfits. Otherwise, yeah. it's going to be the same <laughs> But it's show. not always the case. Sometimes <laughs> it's the same outfit, too. Correct. Like, you got to so. hope you see him in winter and I, maybe they got a coat on. Like, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Right, if you're lucky. If usually, you're lucky. Right. But, you know, that's... That's the biggest thing is when you're – you want to build locally, build out regionally, and then hopefully you, you grab the attention of someone where they can help build you nationally. But my biggest advice is just to not oversaturate your local market right. in the beginning because that is the common mistake. Yeah. Common so, mistake is play, 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 and before you know it. We got to do shows to get known. We got to – I've seen it managing and I've seen it like – I've it's like, well, we have to do shows. We have to do shows. And I was like – the same people are coming to your shows. Yeah, I mean, they yeah, run you out have of money. Shows, but you have to do it strategically. Right. right, they run out of money and they run out of patience to see you. Yeah, your crowds are going to get slimmer, but you're doing shows. Obviously, you just have a show that you can speak to. It was like, sure, we've got something on the calendar, but it's not serving a purpose. Like you're not reach. It's not serving any real advantageous play. Yeah, yeah. and plus, yeah. let's be real. Like in the beginning stages, a decent percentage of your crowd is going to be your homies coming through to support, Family and, and friends, yeah. you don't want to hit them up every week. Hey, Those motherfuckers broke too. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, come, like, come spend from, 10 and see yeah, me yeah, and then yeah. I won't buy you a drink at the bar with a yeah. little bit of money that you gave right. me. Like, exactly. It's better to do that fewer uh, Calvin got a job. <laughs> <laughs> Let me stream your song in the crib where yeah, I can right? yeah. listen to it on mute with the TV on loud. Like, <laughs> Speaking of finances specifically, you know, once you get to that regional level or, um, you know, the, the, the college level, how much money should, uh, acts be putting back into their show, right? Because, um, some people are just like, yo, I'm just trying to make money and, and they need the money. So then they take the money, you know, is it advantageous for them to continue to make their product better by putting their money back into the show? If so, is there, 
you know, is there a framework that you work off of? Like, you know, we always say like, take your 20%, pay yourselves that, put the rest back into, you know, the rest of the tour or, you know, building out a cooler set or whatever the case is. Yeah. I mean, specifically like, I mean, at least what I've heard from managers in the space, they always consider a show or a tour successful if they walk away with 50% of the gross, you know, and because you think about it, there's a lot that goes into a show yeah. or a tour. Uh-huh. There's hotels, there's travel, there's production, Food, all, all those yeah, things, yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything. So when they walk away with 50% of what they made, they consider that a success. Uh-huh. You know, it's what you're shooting for. It doesn't right. mean you always get there. Now, on a smaller scale, I would honestly say that anything you get besides, you know, taking the money that you need to live, anything beyond that you should throw right back into your shit. Because one of the biggest factors when you're developing artists, and especially for us as agents, is your show. If you're like a rapper, give me something besides just you and your DJ. If you're a band, you know, give me something besides just you guys behind your instruments. When you see someone put on a show or just, even if it's not much, just a little bit, there's something more tied to their show, man, does that right. stick out? Because everyone does the bare minimum. So it doesn't take That's all luck. you need for a show. Yeah. Right. And to be honest, I get it. It's, it's to no one's fault. They just don't know any better. Anything that you can take and put back into your show, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's essentially what we want this podcast to really be about, is talking about reshaping the way artists think about the money that they do make for shows. It's like... And just their career in general, right? It's like this is an, an investment not only in time but in, in money and resources. So like when you do get that opportunity to um, – where you get a show where you make a decent amount of money, it's like you should be thinking about it in terms of I want to be here for five years, right? Sure. The, mm-hmm. So what do I need to do to be here in five years? It's like, well, you got to take that money and make your show better, right? Do you have a light guy? If you don't have a light guy, maybe in the next show you find a light guy, you talk to your agent and you get somebody there. You get, you know, you buy a projector, you buy fucking smoke screen, like what, or a uh, smoke machine or, you know, all those little things definitely, you know, like you were saying, they, they seem oh, to they add make up. a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The tiniest things will make a huge difference. And then it's also like merch too, man, like putting that back into, um, you know, other ways to make money, right? Or just putting it mm-hmm. back into promoting the next show. Right. That, that's a yeah. piece too. I that... mean, there's definitely good ways to, to recycle your money that will only help you. Right. And I, I think that's a good point too. If you have good creative merch, get your fans happy and then you sell that merch and then now – voila, you have more money to recycle back into your business. Do you put it towards the show? Do you put it towards promoting? You know, I think what it really comes down to is at the end of the day, you just want to have the flexibility to help propel yourself forward. So whether it's, you know, being smart with the show money that you make, being smart with the merch money that you make, just invest it back in yourself one way or another. So reinvest is one of the best pieces you give. Are there five... Or we usually ask for five more tips Mm. that they have for artists. So what are five tips for artists and managers that are looking to sign with a booking agent? So I guess along with that, I mean, here's the biggest thing. I I always will tell artists, I guess mainly from an artist perspective, you know, uh, create demand and we will come to you. Mm -hmm. Now, as easy as that sounds, it's super broad, and you're like, okay, cool, thanks. So shoot for the stars. What are you What are you trying to say? Right, right. But you know, when it really comes down to it, I think from an artist's perspective, other 
pieces of advice I'd give are, you know, one, you have to perfect your craft, mm. right? So if you're writing every day or you're studying styles or Benny Blanco is the best because he would take all of Kanye's records and break down the real samples and right. then remake and the entire it. beats yeah, himself. Yeah. Because yep. you want to know how Kanye made it. Right. You know, so you have to perfect your craft in that way. Another thing I'd say is this is kind of an easy one that I just don't think a lot of artists will artists know. And it's more of just to have a general idea of things, but you should know the charts. Because if you know the charts, you kind of know where the market is and you kind of know where the market could be going if you've been following it long enough. Yeah. And I don't say that in a sense of like Oh, just be what people Make want. That yeah, yeah. But if you've perfected your craft, you can kind of tweak it here or there. You can say, hey, you know, wow, this is where music is. Like right now we're kind of into like emo rap, sad yep. pop stuff. Well, this is where it is. This is where it might go. And right. that's something I can do. It's also about trying to find that lane too. It's like knowing what the market is. That doesn't mean you have to be that. It means that you're paying attention to you where the opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're generally conscious of what's going on, which yeah. guess what? Sadly enough, most people forget the second word in music business and they forget the business aspect right. of it. When an artist wakes up and they go, well, this is what I do. This is who I am. Uh. If you're not at least conscious of your business and where the flow of, of you know genres are going and, and what have you, you're kind of just – Shooting in the dark. And that would yeah. be the first word to frustrate them because they were just trying to make the first word, but they forget <laughs> yeah. about the second word. <laughs> no, and that's yeah. the one that fucks them it, up. It's like, tough. <laughs> it's very tough. And yeah. I mean, and to be honest, that's that's actually another tip that I have is you have to realize that this is a business. And I say that in in many ways. And I don't say that to disappoint anyone or to make this whole like less sexy, but right. it is a business. Like you're gonna sometimes you're gonna go to shows and they're not gonna be that great, just how you wake up and go to work and you have some Good days and bad days. Yep. Some days you're going to take, you know, shitty gigs, but they're going to pay well. You know, everything is not going to be a home run. You know, you have to treat it like a business because if you don't, you'll you'll shoot yourself in the foot. You know? And it's like that's where you want to grow to. It's like the goal is to be able to make this your life's work and right. so that you can get paid from that. So like – yeah, I think a lot of times people tend to uh, artists coming up, they tend to get scared, and they're just like, oh, "I'm just going to focus on the music." Right. Like, I only need to worry about that. And it's like, well, if you want to make this your career, you should understand what the markets are, and you should yeah. have a sense of yeah, how. If you to... don't want to be homeless, you should know. Yeah, what you should at least know what's going on, <laughs> yeah. or until you get a manager who is aware of it. Right, right. then you can right. go do whatever you want to do. Go yeah, run yeah. in the woods, but you can't claim cognitive dissonance if you can't deposit a check into your account. Correct. Like, you, have like to know, you, yeah. you gotta at least know some basics. And uh -huh. some of the greatest artists are the ones who had that from the get go. Yep. yep. And I mean, I guess that also ties into a, another uh, tip I have is just if you're doing all of that and you're consciously aware of, of starting from A to B and doing what you have to doing what you have to do to make it, uh -huh. you have great work ethic. Yep. And nothing is more appealing than working with someone who wants this, like really, really right. wants to do it. You know, because there are always artists that will have a great hit and you want to help them. And like, of course, they're all about it. But like the artists who have a work ethic to be something greater, you know, than just average, like those, those are some ones to, to really help out. That's like when you get excited you're like all right well how how can i be a part of it like how can i make this grow how can i help like when you have a great work ethic and you know the artist is going to work just as hard as you if not harder uh -huh. oh man that's 
the most appealing. And that's one that they – that's part of what they often overlook. They say, oh, well, you can't deny a hit record. But you also can't deny a tireless work ethic yep. or a thorough work ethic. Like yeah, because yeah, the- you didn't get the hit record unless you were working so hard for the five, ten years prior. Exactly. Right. To you know, get to the tipping point of finally having the hit. Right, and you've heard a hit record that hasn't been worked before. Like yeah. I've been in the room for records that were hits, and I've worked a whole or I had a whole project sitting from Redacted, and like just every record was supposed to be that record, like and just never happened because Redacted's work ethic was horrendous. And it goes back to what you say uh, or what you said a couple of minutes ago about uh, having good days and bad days. You know, like people coming into this uh, industry tend to think that um, it's all about the shiny things and like becoming famous, you know, and that's, you know, one of the downsides of the internet. But it's really about doing those shitty shows in the middle of fucking nowhere for 50 people. um, But Knowing that it's part of a bigger thing and and still giving it your all that night, being like, all right, there's not a bunch of people here, but fuck it. I'm going to show them a great time so that when we come back in six months, there's going to be 300 people. And the internet is everywhere. So they're going to talk. You're going to have advocates. Like people are going to hop on Twitter. It's going to spread. Right. Like and, people and, in middle America go viral over bullshit. Right. Yeah. You know, like everybody goes viral over bullshit. But like, you know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> yeah. possible to be in a nowhere audience right. and to get that to go everywhere. Yeah. yeah. It's it's about taking – it's about looking at everything as an opportunity, right? If there's only 50 people there, oh shit, you have an opportunity to talk to those 50 people. Those 50 one people are there for you. Or mm-hmm. fucking take pictures or sign – whatever. Make it a night so that it's memorable for them. And if you bring a person them. next time, you got 100 people. Exactly. Bring a person exactly. Next time, like, and you know – and I, I guess that would tie into the last tip I ever had is yeah. – is, going back to having a great show and being a good live performer. Like, you know, it's not, uh, it's not kind of like a a make it or break it type point. But if, if you are a good performer and you can command a crowd, you can interact with your fans. Like not only are you going to build loyalty with them, but we're going to recognize that you have a relationship that, you know, is really there. Right. And it starts with doing those small shows because uh-huh. if you oh, have yeah. this, you know, the, this sound and you got a full band behind you and you're playing to two people, you know how fucking hard that is? Right. Like you think it's easy because there's only two people and like, ah, man, I wish there was a bunch of other people here. It's, but it's the like – The more awkward it is, the more difficult it is. Exactly. Yeah. If you can, And if you can't uh, create um, a, a moment between those two people and your band, then it – it doesn't matter if you're playing in front of 10,000 people. Like it's it's not going to be a great show. It may be an okay show, but if you can build that level of uh, comfortability about playing in front of two people, like it just – Yeah, if you could put it, on a great show no matter what, yeah. that you're already a cut above. Yeah. I mean and, and I actually learned that back at my, my days at DTR. Right. When we were going from bar to bar or whatever it was, mm-hmm. sometimes you'd go in on a Friday night and there was 100 people and you're like – yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you go to, you know, like, I don't know, Wichita, Kansas or something on, on a Tuesday and there's like seven people and you're like, that's a good Tuesday. Oh, <laughs> shit. Tuesday in Wichita. <laughs> well, when you're sitting there like, do we have to do this show? There's yeah, only yeah. seven people here. And, but what's funny is, you know, out of those seven people at the end of the show, all seven of them would come up and buy something, uh-huh. chat with you. And guess what? 
you know, become advocates. You right. Bring a person yeah. Next like, time you're in front of and you, thing. and you never, interest, man. right. Yeah. And you never know who you're playing in front of. Right. Correct. You know what I mean? Like they could be the fucking booking agent at Wichita state or some shit. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. now they want you to play in front of their college. So you love your Jerry Springer final thoughts. Oh, um, you love, <laughs> bring it back and putting a button on it. You're real, you're real after school special. Hey, man, with the, shit. That's why what are you working on right now? Just as we close out, is there anything that you're working on that you're particularly excited about? I or? mean, I do a lot of the, besides the, the day-to-day stuff at the college world, I mean, mm-hmm. I do a lot of developing stuff, but I have to say the, the thing that I'm most excited about now is this, uh, this trio out of Phoenix, Arizona, an alternative hip hop trio called Injury Reserve. Okay. Dudes are great. I mean, they they pretty much check off all the boxes that I mentioned. Like their Dope. work ethic is crazy. They 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 almost think about what they're doing more than I can even think about it. Like they're, yeah. they're just they're, they nonstop are just thinking about how can we make the show better, what can we do more. And we have a tour coming up with them in the fall. They're dropping their their uh, debut album via Loma Vista next month, Dope. and they're like super, super critical of what they do because they want to make sure they put their best foot forward. And it's like it it's super dope to work with them. Nice. nice. Yeah. Cool. And then where can people uh, get at you uh, on social? Uh, social, Ronnie Percocet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anything else is uh, up on the United Talent Agency website. Yes. There you go. Good name. <laughs> I, got yeah, I was um, like, yo, he's waiting for something. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's, that's all I got. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you for, yeah, having, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, appreciate it, man.